Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Hello everyone, and thank you again for joining us at the 2022 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Uh, my name is Mike Duke and I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome our next panel, uh, Ticketing When Precedent is No Longer a Predictor. Um, our panelists here, we have Francis Traisman, Senior Vice President of Sales for the Seattle Mariners, Jonathan Tillman, Senior Vice President of Team Marketing and Business Operations for the NBA, Christian Bernard, President of Business Operations for the Columbus Crew, Patrick Ryan, Co-Founder of Eventlect, and our panel will be moderated by Shira Springer, journalist and lecturer at Boston University and MIT Sloan. The panel will run for 45 minutes, followed by 10 minutes of questions. Uh, if you have questions, please submit them through Twitter using the hashtag futureofticketing. And with that, I'll hand it to you, Shira. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, panelists. And thank you, audience, for coming to what I hope will be a great conversation about ticketing, where we'll talk a lot about innovations and what lies ahead in the future and some of the challenges um, that the ticket industry is facing. But I want to start here. Um, it can be really easy to think about ticketing as simply entry and seat assignment. Um, but it's become much more than that. And I think when we were talking, Francis, you said, it was about selling an experience, not tickets. So what does that mean to you? And how exactly do you sell an experience? Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me here. I'm excited to talk about uh, ticketing. You know, I've been in the ticketing world for a long time, and ticketing is really, the ticket is just a vehicle to an experience. So um, I've been in, on the sales side for a long time, and selling an experience, if you think about where where we play at T-Mobile Park, um, the ballpark has 47,000 people. Not everyone is going to have the same experience. So if they're looking for um, you know, a particular group event or they're coming by themselves or coming with their family, we're, we're tailoring that experience and tailoring what we're sharing with them based on what it is that they're looking for. And um, you know, looking at our venue, it's essentially a series of neighborhoods. Um, and so what neighborhood do you want to be in? Where, where do you fit? What um, experience are you looking for today? And it could be different, you know, if we have 81 home games, it could be a different experience on home game one versus home game 81. Uh, and so in, in our world, when we're talking with our ticket sales team, that's what they're trying to convey, is asking a lot of questions. What is it that you're looking for? And we, can, we have something to offer for you that can re meet your needs. Mm -hmm. So I'll open that up to everyone, this notion of selling an experience. How do you go about selling an experience? What does that look like in today's ticketing world? I think we, can, we just can't forget that the reason why people enjoy sports, so much of it is the ability to spend time together whether you're going by yourself and you're just looking to connect with people, uh, whether you're going with your family, uh, whether you're going with your friends, it is, it is an experience that they're sharing with, with other people. So when, you, when you're a season ticket member um, and you're sharing that experience and you're, you're really passionate about it, you want to share, you're sharing a part of yourself. You're showing the people that you care about like what you care about. 
Um, so when we, when we think about how we, how we talk to those fans and we treat those fans, especially when they come into our homes, it's, you have to keep that in mind. And I love the neighborhood analogy. It's exactly how I think about it. I'm like, okay, when you're, I lived in New York for the past 15 years. Like, okay, are you an Upper West Sider? Right. Are you an Upper East Sider? That tells you a lot about you and where you, where you choose to live. So where you choose to live in our, in our venues says a lot about who you are and what you want out of that experience. And then it's up to us to make sure that we, that we deliver. So if you really want like a super premium experience, how do you make that like just out of this world? So something that they did brilliant, brilliantly without me involved at Lower.com, it's called the Huntington Field Club. And best experience I've seen. You go in there, it's a beautiful, beautiful space, but the magic is the players actually come out of the locker room, they walk through the club, and the fans follow them onto the pitch. Literally follow them onto the pitch as like part of the team and they go up to their seats. Like think about that as like, that's an ultimate experience. And that's, there's a certain person that lives in a neighborhood uh, that, that wants that experience. It's funny, we, we think about you know, our arenas in the NBA much like a town square. It's where the community comes and gets together. It brings people together from different walks of life. And it's experiences like that and what you've built there at uh, your, your ballpark too as well that allow that community to be had and be fostered uh, organically amongst our fans. And we're seeing just more intentionality now, too, as well, with new renovations with arenas across the NBA. You take a team like the Minnesota Timberwolves that have evolved your traditional suite experience, right? Where many of us have gone to one of those suites where you sit, you go into your box, you've got your own private bathroom, you have your own food, and you sit and talk to your own people for a number of games. But in many of our communities, these suites are held by heavy hitters, people of influence, businesses, companies that know each other and want to congregate. And there's value not just in congregating amongst themselves, but amongst those in their community. So what they've done is turn that on its head and basically turn the suite into a place with three walls and it has a door. But you wanna pull people out of that door into a communal space that they all share. And now they're in their own little private club and area that they can all sort of communicate, uh, gather, talk, share, uh, and be amongst those that are of influence in that community. And those are things like that that become a big part of this experience of what our games provide. And, and you see just how meaningful and valuable it is over the past 24 months where many teams and markets and fans missed out on that. And you had the shift to virtual communities, which were fun. Many of you saw in the NBA bubble, the, the fans on the screens around there that got the chance to participate virtually, but that's a lot different than being in person. I think we've seen just more and more the value of that across the board. I think that we're looking at, you know, the nicer neighborhoods when you're buying a home, a lot of those homes have their own personalized website. Um, and so I think when we're talking about selling experiences, we need to think about how people are buying other things, particularly uh, luxury goods. And, you know, video is key. And also customization is key. The, the Indianapolis Colts, they have the domain coltsuites.com, right? So that helps them with Google relevancy, but also really enables them to sort of taper an experience to that person who's looking for a suite, not just a ticket in the upper bowl. Um, I think video, especially with, you know, TikTok and Instagram, uh, teams really need to start, you know, kind of leaning on sometimes their sales staff can be great influencers and create good content. Um, in Atlanta, we talked about on the preview call, there's a gentleman with the Instagram handle Ticket Jerry. And Ticket Jerry is the best seller of premium seats in sports today. And it's because he gives so much detail around here's the food that's in the Delta Club and, and here's, the here's the players coming on and off the court from his seat and it really makes you want to go to it. 
um, related to him mentioning that, like, hey, the Delta Club stays open for an hour after the game, Francis and I were talking about, like, if, you know, selling a premium experience, the best way to sell it is, like, the restaurant adage is, like, it's easier to get someone to come back a second time than to get someone to come in the first time. So if you have someone walking into your premium club, the simplest best question is, have you been here before? And if they haven't, you need to walk them through the nuances of, hey, this type of food's here till the third inning, and then it switches over to ballpark fare. There's people that sit in premium seats that don't know they have access to the buffet behind them. So a lot of times it's just a function of like not taking anything for granted. Mm -hmm. uh, so on the front end, create great content, but then once they're in the building, make sure they're being super serviced. So I know this preview call where we talked about uh, video and video being key was a bit of inspiration, Chris. Oh, I love the idea. Uh, we already have a brainstorm session set up on Monday for it. We're already talking about, okay, we're in Columbus, Ohio. Let's go to Ohio State and get a, get a group of students and let's show the video of them coming down to lower.com. Let's show them uh, going through the venue and finding their neighborhood um, and where they choose to sit and why they, why they choose to sit there and what beer garden do they visit. So I thought it was a brilliant idea. Take it a step further and say, okay, how do we think about customer segmentation and show it through their lens and see what they see? Because they're going to see something different than the Ohio State student. So I thought it was brilliant. So thank you, Patrick. <laughs> thank you, Ticket Jerry. <laughs> by the way, Ticket Jerry is by far the best handle, I think, on Twitter. <laughs> no question. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, I think you said to that point, just around how do we sell our product and, and Someone said it here earlier, but every fans, fan has a separate and different experience. And you know, certainly the, the leveraging influence across our social platforms is, is one that we really focus a lot on across many of our teams in the NBA. Two-thirds of them work with uh, a company that helps optimize their influencer strategy across the board. But this is so important because the experience of a, a young family is different than the experience of a, a college kid versus a company or a business or a super fan. And how are we able to find uh, people that can help tell those stories on behalf of mm -hmm. the sales reps at the teams and our marketing digital staffs at teams as well is really, really important and just expands our reach across the board. And to your point, Matrick, just really tells the story of what it's like to be a part of that game day experience overall. So telling that story of what it's like to be part of that game day experience brings us a bit into social media, the social media territory here. Um, most social media accounts for ticketing are, are run like brands. And I'm wondering if some disruption or change needs to take place with how social media accounts um, are run around ticket selling and just with, with you know, teams in general. Um, your thoughts on perhaps what changes could be ahead or should be ahead when it comes to social media accounts and teams and leagues and selling tickets. You know, I think you want to take a look at the recent purchases and transactions of professional sports teams and Ryan Smith who bought the Utah Jazz one of the reasons he feels it's a great investment is that he feels like he can make it an international brand. So if you really start selling Donovan Mitchell jerseys in you know, Belgium the way he'd like to and the way he's managed to campaign Delta to change routing uh, of flights to bring more direct flights from China to Salt Lake City, um, you, know, you think of the power of, of connectivity, right? But even if you get a couple more flights coming in from China daily, you're still gonna have a social media presence where like 97% of the people following you can't get to a game. And so I think whether it's on uh, the Facebooks or Twitters or, or you know, Instagrams to create sort of a way to segment the content, it's really hard to, if you're a social media manager, those clicks on your stories are so valuable to interrupt it with like a two for Tuesday offer can cost you a follower. And so I think that we've got to get like 
social media, the metaverse, whatever you guys want to call it, there's got to be a localized kind of version, and then there's got to be sort of a global version. And I think that we're, we're seeing some teams try to buy fabricate and have different handles, but it's just never going to be power, that powerful, right? So I think we've got to figure out a way to personalize the content based on what the person wants. Francis, I see you nodding your head over there in agreement. Yeah, and I would take it, I know we were talking about social media, but I would extend that, you know, what I've experienced even as a fan or a season ticket member and other um, industry, you know, other leagues, is that you'll have a social media experience that might bring you to a website, for instance, and that just goes flat. We're not doing what we need to do um, to provide that experience or, or tell that story um, on our websites, which is the basic, you know, um, you know, format when people are searching for information about your organization or your club. And you know, uh, Patrick had mentioned kind of uh, real estate. I, I liken it to you know, we're selling pretty large uh, dollar amounts, um, and you have to really search to find any information about it. But if you're buying a house or a car, you can find anything you want about that. We're not telling that story as, a, as an industry and sports story so that fans can really truly get that information. And then they're willing to give you information. So going back to Patrick's point about segmenting the social media platforms, they're not mature enough. At the, I, don't, I don't think they're mature enough yet um, to do that. And we also don't have as many followers potentially in some of those areas. So, but we could get better data if we provided more information for our, for our fans, you know, as they're looking for it. It's, it's like going, trying to get to Fort Knox, looking for premium, uh, see information on different websites. Um, I just feel like we're missing a, a, a great opportunity to really just tell a great story. We have great stories to tell. We've been modifying our um, venues and um, providing great experiences. We just haven't matured enough to tell that story. And maybe telling that story helps with some of those lower demand games. <laughs> is, is, that, is that part of the thinking there? I, I would agree. I mean, I, okay. I'd like to hear you know, from, from the rest of the group. We, we definitely look at that experience. And again, back to um, your point about how um, you know, families or colleagues or um, you know, college students we have different, you know, a lot, a lot of games and um, a lot of different neighborhoods to fill. And we can tell that story through, through our website, through social media, um, and create those experiences um, separately. Yeah, I was going to say, you're looking at Jonathan yeah, because Jonathan, at Jonathan has been outspoken about it. You know, this is interesting. I think certainly the pandemic has taught us a lot of things around just demand for our games and events. And for those of us here at Teams, you, you've all seen just the varied... Uh, points of demand as we've gone through the course of the pandemic from the early stages to now where things are opening up more and more. But, you know, we certainly see from our fans just the amount of disruption that the pandemic has had on just day-to-day -day lives has created more of a varied gap between your higher demand games and your lower demand games. And certainly there's a lot more effort that with behind making those other games maybe not as attractive, uh, seem more welcoming for fans across the board. And just our creativity in that point from pricing to how we think about how do we program these nights mm -hmm. with the unique activations and theme nights, things of that nature, is just really, really important that we've all had to maximize across the board. So, uh, you know, I think just across the board, you, you've seen just steadied interest, but, you know, there's just wide swings from the peaks and the valleys across the board. And no one's probably seen that more than what just Patrick's looked at in the data across all the leagues as you monitor what's happening across the secondary and primary markets. So I think one thing to keep in mind with, you know, 
uh, ticket sales, it's a function of conversions, right? And then if it's a function of conversions, it's a, it's a function of eyeballs. And generally, low demand events convert at the same rate as high demand events. What happens is the high demand events have more eyeballs and so that's can kind of drive pricing up. So when we think about lower demand events, we can't lose a conversion. You know, so our company, uh, our science team and our software team is very focused on maximizing conversions by having the appropriate inventory posted, right? I mean, six years ago, most of these secondary markets were just littered with really inefficient listings. You'd have row seven more expensive than row three, and that is innately so confusing to your casual customer. So how do we create like a merchandising system so that when someone is looking at a Tuesday night low demand game, you know, when the weather might not be great, how do we get them to convert at a higher rate? And so we do think that a lot of that is, uh, programming is a huge part of it, but then also being able to say, this is a good option, this is the right option for you, so that the person buys before they get an invitation to their company happy hour, or they get invited to, to, to Top Golf, right? So just trying to get them to buy, and that really requires having uh, a segmented approach uh, in how you're kind of merchandising the inventory. I want to turn, oh, Kristen, did you have something you want to I have two thoughts. No okay. wonder we can't move any primary tickets on our website. <laughs> <laughs> number one, because uh, you're brilliant. You do, a great, you do a great job in event select. Um, number two, I'm reminded of way back in the day, uh, there was a really prominent sports executive, and I won't say his name because it'll be embarrassing. Uh, and he was talking passionately at an NBA meeting about how they're going peak on peak, and they're just going to forget about the rest of the games. <laughs> And David Stern was commissioner then. And he went over to the guy's chair and he goes, I'm going to say, JT, I'm going to call your owner on Monday and I'm going to tell him that you don't care about 50% of your game. I mean, it just got louder and louder. And everybody basically crawled under the table. Uh, but the lesson was you don't, you don't give up on any games. And to make each game unique is our job as, as marketers. I want to stick with you, Kristen, because two years ago, the last time we were on this stage talking about ticketing, we said the season ticket was dead, and you wondered whether it was ever actually alive. And so I'm wondering, you know, what is your perspective on season tickets now? Has it changed? Has the pandemic changed any of your thinking? Has, have other factors changed? Yeah, I mean, what, what, I, what I meant when I said that was, does anybody ever really go to, you know, in the NBA, 41 games. No. Um, it's a very small number of people who actually do that, and people have always been sharing their tickets uh, with you know, their business partners or their friends, their family, they've always done that. And so we just made it easier, right, with technology. And so um, you know, we still have great demand for season tickets. I love that badge of honor, um, and we don't talk about it enough. Like, it is really important for fans to be able to say, I'm a season ticket member. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can deliver on that investment that they've made and make them feel important, because they, that's a badge of honor, um, the better we'll be as, as businesses. Yeah, I'll just poly onto that one. I, I agree. And I think just when you look at the average age of a season ticket holder across the NBA, you know, that's a 52 to 55-year-old uh, traditionally white male that buys tickets across the board. Uh, and you're looking at what's coming up behind, and that younger consumer, that multicultural consumer, has different expectations than when that buyer first purchased, right? So when you talk about how do we onboard the newest version of our season ticket holders, which typically come on around the age of 38 to 40, they have different expectations. 
So I agree that the season ticket, hardly anyone goes to all the games. There's always been shadow partners. You pass those things along. Uh, but there's certainly value in thinking about how do we evolve that experience in those packages to make it more accessible and just to meet the expectations of consumers today, right? We're living more of an on-demand society. We have a lot of choice and benefits of what you want to choose from there. Uh, more flexibility gives our fans the opportunity to do that. And you're seeing tons of teams make that shift uh, across the board with subscription plans and passes and things of that nature that allow them to do that and really give customers a chance to choose their own way in their package from there, which is better for all of us because all of us wants to own that interaction with the consumer, right? That one-to-one -one interaction. So the more that we can create an opportunity to onboard as many people as possible, we're better positioned for it. Francis, I know flexibility is big for you, right? Yeah, I, I would say it's fun to have this conversation. I love the season ticket is dead conversation. Um, and I would argue that actually since the beginning of season tickets, the, they have, you know, season ticket members have wanted flexibility. They've been limited. We've limited them. Um, there hasn't been the technology allowed to, you know, give them that flexibility. That's what launched the secondary market, um, you know, is that people didn't have the um, reason to go to all 81 games. Um, and flexibility, we have the technology now. Um, I know we've launched recently, you know, prior to 2020, a flex membership. And we've always had a flex plan, but it wasn't really flexible, um, a flex membership. And we're trying to address not just the new, um, you know, season ticket or younger season ticket member, but really meet all of our fans where they are. So we have multiple levels of entry, um, and it provides them the opportunity, again, to maybe explore the different neighborhoods. So maybe tonight I'm having a date night and tomorrow night I'm taking my little league um, and then the next time I'm bringing some clients to the game and I can try club seats or outfield seats or upper deck. Um, so we've seen, we introduced this prior to the pandemic, um, not exactly the best timing, but it actually worked out to be great timing. Um, and we've seen now conversion um, of our flex memberships, we have 50% of our season ticket members are wow. now flex members. Um, it, it doesn't preclude our reserve members from also having that flexibility because there are season ticket members, back sure. to your point, that want to have the same seat. They want to know when they go to the game, this is where I go, this is you know the seating host in my section, this is who's going to greet me and say hello, and this is where I go for my concessions. Um, but they also have the flexibility to exchange tickets and um, have a different experience on another day. It, it's really two paths we've provided for people. They can either choose their path and build it as they go, or they can have a set path and break it down if they need to. And, and the flexibility, uh, like I said, has been, it's well received. You can tell, you know, people are voting with their feet and saying, this is, this is great, so. Now, Patrick, when we've talked, you've brought up the fact that they're selling season tickets in sections where they probably shouldn't be selling season tickets. So I think that, like, in terms of, you know, segmentation, you've got to think about the fact that the vast majority of sporting events today, if you pick one section and just grab four rows, you're very likely to have a season ticket member, a mini plan buyer, a group buyer, someone who bought off the primary market, someone who has comped a ticket, and someone who bought off the, a resale channel. So you've got six really different product types, which is six different customers all buying the same thing. That's, it's not just inefficient, it's like hyper inefficient, right? And so if you can figure out like what section, what row is gonna be most productive, whether it be from a revenue standpoint for the team or utilization from the consumer, 
and get your group ticket people focused like specifically on that part of the building or get your season ticket salespeople focused on that part of the building, the results are just going to be better because they're focused. Um, and, and they've got kind of a direct, uh, you know, channel uh, that they're, you know, not just spraying and praying. Because it's just like not every seat should be sold as a group ticket. Not every seat should be sold as a season ticket. And so I think that once we kind of look towards segmentation, and, you know, I'm proud of the fact that our company helps our partner teams do this through our underwriting process and kind of evaluating the, the real value of the inventory, that can decide what's the best channel to sell it through. And then all of a sudden, you've segmented the building, and now you can really personalize it, both in terms of marketing and then providing service. Okay, the pandemic has sort of hanging over this mm -hmm. panel a little bit. I mean, we're on a day when Boston has lifted its indoor mask mandate. Um, and it seems like, I don't want to jinx anything, it seems like we may finally legitimately be on an off-ramp, um, a true off-ramp for the pandemic. So I am wondering just how the pandemic has changed the ticketing industry. There are some obvious ways, I think the, the adoption of digital, but in both the obvious and less obvious ways in which the pandemic has changed your industry over the last couple of years? I'd just say it's changed the world. Yes. Right? And so people, I think, value their time more than ever. Um, they, they changed their behaviors and spent their time extremely differently. And so, you know, the notion of like getting somebody to like take their sweatpants off and like come to a game. <laughs> Uh, put on real clothes, like real pants. You know, like real pants. Yeah. Um, you know, big girl, big boy clothes. Yes. It's uh, it's it's a challenge, and so, um, but but it's also really, a, I think, an opportunity, uh, because I think you know, coming to this conference, I felt it. I don't know if you guys did. We were here two years ago, um, with the super spreader event that they had here, and uh, going going straight into the pandemic, and um, it, and and I really have valued the time with everybody here just in a different, totally different way. Like meeting new people, but seeing old friends like, yeah. like JT here uh, has been awesome. And there's no replacement for it. Totally agree with all that. And it's, it's funny too, just thinking about all this evolved and changed over the last couple of years. And you know, we all spent a lot of time at home watching sporty events you know, during the early parts of the pandemic when arenas were not allowed to host fans or there were few fans in buildings. And we all saw massive like progression and the broadcast. We're seeing 4K cameras, we're seeing new views and angles. We can choose which broadcast we want to listen to. All of that has gotten significantly better in a small amount of time, which puts a lot more pressure on the in arena experience, right? We have to deliver in ways that maybe we haven't before because the at home, on the couch experience, is that more fun? Oh, and by the way, I'm still working from home. Uh, I don't have to commute downtown where arenas are, things of that nature. So there's all these things we have to think about how to deliver a unique experience to fans uh, that we have and more so in the past. But I'm convinced that the, the, the sense of community that our, our buildings and arenas being that KB talked about is one of those things that we have that we can rely on. And we're seeing more and more venues look at opportunities to evolve seating areas or change them, pull them back, provide new opportunities to congregate and gather together at our venues and events. And you saw that firsthand at the NBA Finals, right? You had two teams that have massive fan bases that hadn't been there in a while, but you also had these cool things in arena where Phoenix has these bars that basically sit in the corners of the building. You get fans going crazy there. The, the Bucks of the Deer District, all those opportunities create these unique experiences for fans we can kind of rely on to pull people together as one community. Uh, but also there's the virtual experience. I think those won't go away. I think that's no. one thing that's changed us that we're embracing these new opportunities more than we have in the past. 
We've all talked a lot about NFTs over the last couple of days, and I think we should add more onto this one here, but there's, there's certainly tons of opportunity there for us. And you know, what we've done with Dapper Labs, uh, great folks there that we partnered with to help us create experiences for fans, how we're bringing more of those things to an arena to unlock experiences for fans too as well, along with you know, that ticket is one thing that we're gonna see more and more across the board. Uh, I think those are the things I get excited about with where the industry will take us, and that is a fortunate consequence of the pandemic that we can all learn from across the board. Yeah, and I, I would add to you know the idea that it is, while it may be hard to get out of your sweatpants and come down to the um, <laughs> ballpark or to the arena, I, I think your sense of community is really um, what people are missing yeah. more than anything. You know, if you're working remotely at home all day and you're staring at a, a screen and talking to your friends and family um, on a screen, there's nothing better than to come back together. And I, I, I actually think it is an opportunity for um, sporting venues and events to really bring people together in new ways that they hadn't thought about before. Um, you know, if there's an organization that's gone fully remote, I mean, they're going to need to get their people back somewhere if they don't have an office building. This is, you know, so these are the places that they're going to go um, to bring people together. So I'm, I, I think it's a, it's been a great opportunity for well, all. People have stopped going to the office. Yes. They've stopped going to church. Yeah. And so now, like, big opportunity right. for us. Yeah. Bring people together. And I think long term, we have to think about the effects of the pandemic because if I were in the process of planning a stadium, I hit the pause button. Um, you know, America's had a love-hate relationship with the suburbs for 70 years now. And it feels like people are falling back in love with the suburbs because of the flexibility to work a good percentage of your job from home have more space, you know, th those sort of perks. And so I think to that point is, I think teams might want to start marketing uh, the convenience because a lot of these cities that are seeing less people downtown, they're seeing less traffic, you know? And so rather than being like, catch a ball game on your way back home, it's more like come into town uh, after working at home, right? And like that reversal of behavior. And so I do think it's going to take some time to figure it out. Uh, and so I think that we're going to see this there's just all this momentum of you have to have a downtown stadium, you have to have a downtown, downtown stadium. That's probably going to shift in some markets. And so I think it's, we've got to be patient and kind of wait for some of this to, to shake out. Well, that, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of change that's going to, it's going to impact every aspect of the way teams and leagues operate for the next several years, decades perhaps. Mm -hmm. Um, there was something that came up when we were talking about season tickets, and it was the mention of spray and pray not working. And I, and I did want to come back and circle back to that because we've talked, Patrick, and you've said that uh, spray and pray approach has, quote unquote, messed things up, um, and that the industry needs a hard reset. And I wanted to, if you could dive in a little more into how um, the spray and pray approach has messed things up and, and what that hard reset might look like. And I'm also curious from the other panelists as to what that hard reset, if you agree, and if you do, what that hard reset might look like. Yeah, so I think it comes down to just being very focused and very intentional about every seat in the venue. Uh, and like for some of our partner teams, we're seeing that they're not selling season tickets in the upper deck because they saw utilization was just really low. So there's one of our uh, partner teams in an arena where they noticed that something like 80% of their upper deck season ticket holders had yet to come to a game. They were either transferring them all or selling them all, and there was a bit of arbitrage, and then they noticed that they were using those funds to finance a lower bowl purchase. So, you know, and, and that's been around for a while. I mean, fans know how to find the price codes that make sense for resale, so I think that, like, that's one of the consequences of not being very focused. 
Now, what I think about from a direct sales tactic, you know, Jonathan basically described a country club member or, or how you might define a, a country club member. And I think teams have to get very focused on this is not a country club. We need to compete with the nightclub, okay? Because in, within 10 miles of almost every stadium in this country on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe in sun, Sunday, fun day, there are 25 to 45-year-olds spending $2,000 on a $50 bottle of Grey Goose, okay? And they're not signing a five-year contract to do that. And so I think from like a yield management perspective, teams are gonna have to get, are gonna have to get comfortable with unbundling to say, all right, country club member, like we're shifting from you, we're gonna go find those, those people at the nightclub. But we've gotta deliver an experience, yeah. right? So like the, the bottle comes out with sparklers, well, guess what? You're gonna walk out on the field with the team. Because what all these people want is an Instagrammable moment, right? So I think that like that evolution has to happen. And what that'll do is that's gonna create more yield at the top end of the market, which then gives teams budget creativity to kind of loosen up a little bit in the mid-tier and lower-tier seats. You were talking about Evamondi doing that, heads. right? Yeah, I was, you know, one, first off, I want to hang out with Patrick later on so he can <laughs> take me to these nightclubs he's talking about. So look me up after. That's number one. Number two, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, our, our teams are, are creating these unique experiences. And as KB and I were talking backstage, just around, you know, just a lot of things we're seeing in venues that are different than the norm that relate to these street experiences outside of venues that you see. And, I had a chance to take in a game in Brooklyn and go to their crown club and talk about a phenomenal experience. I've never had a meal as good as I've had inside any sports venue. Barely a meal as good as that at any other restaurant in New York. It ranks probably my top three that I've had over my eight years living in the city. But we're delivering these unique experiences and, and John Evamani and his team there in Brooklyn done a fantastic job of delivering something that is hard to get outside of the venue and bringing it inside for an exclusive group that wants that. And I think Patrick's right. We're so used to in the sports world of thinking about our higher end products as opportunities for someone to pay a large sum of money to commit over a long period of time. And, and certainly that works for a segment, but there is a group of fans that are out there that just really want to have a good time. Uh, another team that's a good job of that is the Phoenix Suns. And any of you ever gone to the Waste Management Open? Has anyone? Yeah, right. Like the best golf event of all time, really the best party that happens with golf happening around it, right? So they've taken their arena experience and try to figure out how do we bring those unique opportunities, those bottle experiences, those small hospitality areas to deliver them to the fans, not just in a full season commitment, but in one-offs that, you know, the folks want to come out and do some sort of unique things there inside venue. I think that's one that there's tons of opportunity and upside for all of us at, at teams to be able to deliver those experiences for our fans. Yeah, I, I would, um, you know, this goes back to just experiences in general. I mean, we have such an opportunity, um, you know, given, again, a ballpark is very different than an arena, so, and we're not in a new venue, so we're, we have to reinvent ourselves. You know, we were talking earlier about our, um, the pen in T-Mobile Park. I mean, that was 10 years ago that we created the space, and it was actually our fans created it. We saw something happening out in center field, and we're like, hmm, how do we extend that? And we just cleared the space and, you know, added a few amenities. And next thing you know, it's a, it's a phenomenon. So, um, you know, kind of along the lines that Patrick was talking about, you know, creating these um, places. And it's hard if you are sold as season tickets across the board. It is difficult. You know, it's, we, we have customer service issues in certain areas where there are a few season ticket members. And then we sell a large group. 
that those don't go together very well um, all the time. So it is important for you know the leaders of uh, of the teams to make sure that they're really thinking through what are these areas of the ballpark and how am I activating them and who am I putting in those um, sections so that I make sure that I'm not causing myself actually more uh, of a challenge on the back end with customer service issues. And going back to the kind of personalization. I would extend it not just from a sales perspective, but from a service perspective. We, we don't, we're working, what we're working on is really after the event. So the pre and the post event, how are we communicating with the people that came to our venue? What is it, and, it, and the spray and pray approach has been you know, um, pretty prolific. We're really working at segmenting that so that we're giving a more personal experience in both um, and looking to see what those conversion rates are after the fact. I mean, as Patrick said, it's much easier to get someone to come back, especially if they've had a good experience, um, than it is to find someone new to come into your venue. Well, we're on the topic of segmentation. We talked earlier about, and there seemed to be a general consensus about the fact that more customer segmentation uh, was needed. So two questions there. One, what's holding you back from doing more customer segmentation? But also, who does segmentation the best? And I'll, and I'll throw that out uh, to Kristen. This exact question came my way the other day. And I'm a big fan. I'm a phone-a-friend person. So many of you received phone calls from me. And I, I got that question, so I called Jessica Gelman. I said, Jessica, who's the best at fan customer segmentation in the world? You know what she told me? Kager. <laughs> <laughs> Very simple answer. What about looking to other industries? Do you look to other industries in terms well, of? Well, Amazon's the best, right? I mean, I'm pretty sure they know when I've had too much to drink. They serve me up something <laughs> I shouldn't buy. Uh, and, and, and then, you know, Something appears on my doorstep. Uh, but Amazon's the best, for sure. So I think that Amazon's the best at personalization, right? So, so they, they, they knew that habit. Uh, well, we wouldn't say habit. But point being is I think segmentation is you have to. No offense. You've set yourself up. Uh, <laughs> so you know, Nike, we've talked about this in the back, is like they're trying to appeal to the pickup basketball player. They're trying to appeal to the CrossFit athlete. So they've got to, the brand has to kind of segment itself, right? But then you need the technology that can then take that segmented product and deliver it to the person on a one-to-one -one level. And I think that from a ticketing perspective, we're still not there. So I think that like, it's going to be really exciting to see uh, you know, none of the FANG companies are in ticketing in, in, in a significant or unique way. And the FANG companies are the ones that have the data to personalize. And so I think that we're going to see a convergence of you know, the marketplaces you know, that we know today being platforms, but they might be driven by a personalized engine from a Amazon or Apple or Meta. Mm -hmm. So you say, Patrick, we're still not there. So I'm curious, I'm looking at you, Francis. What, what, what is holding back, let's say, for a team from, from doing more segmentation? Yeah, I, I, well, Patrick touched on it. I think we have data. We don't necessarily have all of the data, and it's in disparate places. Um, it, Teams, at least, um, for the most part, are, are fairly uh, slim in terms of staffing around this. 
and we are looking at best practices. So we're, we're behind in terms of this area of expertise, but we're looking outside to those that do it really well, and how can we take the learnings from that and, and apply it to our own organizations. Um, it's coming, it's coming fast, uh, but it's, you know, we're a little behind. Um, exciting to see what the future will bring. I mean, we have it on the roadmap. With, sure. with the NFL and Kager, I mean, I, I mm -hmm. joke about Kager, yeah. they really are great. Kager, yeah. um, <laughs> but the, with the NFL, and I still yeah. go back to what they've done with, with <clears throat> Kager, with all the teams, I think it's just brilliant. You know, it, it, mm -hmm. it, they're headed in a place uh, to be able to use customer data um, probably better than any other league. And so I, like, I look at it, I'm like, man, we should be doing this in Major League Soccer, we should be doing it mm -hmm. in, in every league. Yeah. Francis is right, I think, from the team side. It takes certainly an investment to do that, and I think that's where leagues come in that can help to aggregate a lot of these things, and we spend a lot of time ingesting data from our teams, from our partners across the board. Um, you know, Mike James had a session earlier around just data strategy at the NBA and all the things we're investing in. I think having all of it is, like, step one, right? Understanding yep. all the information we can, and all we've invested in from a mobile ticketing standpoint gives us more... Uh, information on our fans and just being able to understand the chain of custody as things go down the line is important. But I think what's really important here for us to understand, I think we talk about customization and, and personalization, is what's the use case? How does this make the fans' experience better? Uh, and then start from that perspective first and work our way backwards to how do we pull it off and achieve it with all the other tools and resources along the way. So I think that's always important. Sometimes that, that piece gets lost in this conversation around uh, the fan-first approach and, and putting ourselves in their shoes and, and how that can make their lives much more easier across the board. I think in terms of resources, you know, you've got the carrot and the stick. And so when mobile ticketing was introduced, it was the stick method. And it was very friction-filled. And it wasn't as efficient as it could have been. And it did create a lot of problems that they're still kind of seeing the shake out of. So as we talk about collecting data to build a more personalized experience, we've got to go the carrot route. And that's where I think that we start talking about uh, you know, this is where blockchain and NFT can sort of get layered in. But if you want to get people collect, to collect data, you want them paying on their mobile phone, right? So they scan in on their mobile phone. That's a data point. When do they buy something? Is it the third inning? Is it right when they get there? What are they buying, right? So getting all that data collected, but you can't just say, I mean, I'm personally shocked that some of these publicly funded venues have gone cashless. Like, I think there's a real issue there. But if they said, hey, look, they're still, firstly, they're like, oh, we've got these machines where you put in 20 and it spits out a debit card. I mean, it's beyond sort of ridiculous. But I think that if you said, hey, here's the new system. And for every time you do something, you're going to build up these reward points. Mm -hmm. These reward points are going to have real value because either you're going to trade them in for something of value or sell them on the blockchain and get value that way. So I do think that gamification is going to be a way to get more data, and then that's going to enable better personalization, which means more sales and, and better service. So before we head to audience questions, and just a reminder here, a quick uh, reset of our own, you can ask questions with the hashtag future of ticketing, and we will um, pick up and answer some of those questions, pick them up off the iPad. But before we go there, there, were, there was a, both Jonathan and Patrick mentioned NFTs. So I want to touch on that very briefly. We did have a panel earlier today on NFTs, um, but how do you envision NFTs being used in the ticketing industry? It's a big question there. That is a big question. Uh, I think, you know, first and foremost, we're all still learning on this one. Uh, we have more than half of our teams have done a team-led NFT execution, some tied to a game ticket, Tom as an auction. It, it all varies across the board. 
Um, you, you know, I think in this topic, I think you can look at it and say that there is some technology that allows you to do some similar things that blockchain and NFTs allow you to do from a ticketing perspective. But there's a ton of value of just learning how we can marry those two things together, especially I think the last panel on, on NFTs talked about the you know, collectible tickets mm -hmm. in that sense. I think there's some value to that. I you know, have the ticket stubs in my bed under the bed too as well, like <laughs> everyone else, but you, you lose that a little bit. And I think there is some value in having that moment that explains it. You know, the Mavs do a NFT that's delivered to fans after every home game. And you know, that Dirk uh, Nowitzki night NFT is a pretty cool one to have. Uh, those moments tied to it. But I also think there's a lot we can do just to tie in our experiences to these NFT tickets too as well. You know, the Kings have experimented with the idea of a smart ticket that allow you to attach parking and merchandise and other experiences to this smart NFT ticket and decouple them. Maybe you want to uh, trade your ticket, but you want to hold on to the experiences. Or maybe you want to resell one of the experiences to a fan. There's lots of things you can do with these smart contracts that will allow us to decouple things in ways that we just haven't before. And again, we're all still learning here. Uh, I think we'll be a lot smarter a year from now we're talking about this, and certainly much more five years from now. Uh, the best thing we can all do is just experiment, try, and learn different things across the board. I think that the power of the bobblehead can never be understated. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's nuts. Um, I, I, there's just something to it. But the point is that teams have this really tough situation. It's a 20,000-person venue. They've got 10,000 season ticket holders. If you do a 10,000-person bobblehead giveaway, you don't get incrementality because I'm like, I'm not getting a lawn chair and posting up at 5 o'clock in the evening to make sure I get the bobblehead. You do a 20,000-person bobblehead, you're like, well, we gave 10,000 that really we didn't need to because the ticket was already sold. The NFT is really what enables this to scale and have real value. So what happens is, you know, hey, we're announcing a bobblehead night. Everyone who's already got a ticket gets an NFT into their wallet, right? And then if you buy a ticket, you get an NFT into your, into your digital wallet. And what they do is the day of the game, they say, okay, tonight's high score, that's the bobblehead. That's what, whoever's the high score or the top rebounder, that's the bobblehead. And so then after the game, you can redeem your NFT and they ship you a physical bobblehead, or you can do one of other two things. You could put it on the marketplace and sell it, and the team can say, hey, season ticket holders, we're gonna take a 10% VIG for you selling that NFT. Single game buyers, you're gonna pay a 50% VIG to sell, you know, to sell that NFT. But then the other thing is they can like gamify and say, hey, you know, we're gonna do a series of these. So if you get all five bobblehead NFTs, you're gonna trade those in for a chance to win courtside season tickets or something that like, creates a lot of value that that fan can then, quite frankly, monetize. And the team doesn't have to feel bad about the person selling the bobblehead because on the blockchain, they can control what percentage of the revenue they get. So I think that like that promotional item, becoming an NFT is gonna just really expand utility. And rather than it being like having to beg the local grocer to finance the bobblehead, it's gonna be a real source of real revenue. Mm -hmm. The power of the bobblehead and gamification and NFTs. Um, here we go. Uh, one more thing with, with uh, regard to sort of looking to the future and also technology. Um, we had talked, Kristen, about what the Columbus crew have done with facial recognition, and it is yeah. incredibly cool. How have you implemented that in the ticketing process? Because you, as I understand it, done it in a way where only one person needs to be facially recognized for a That's group. Right. To That's get right. Through. So the company's called Wicket. Uh, the technology is awesome. 
Um, it's opt-in. I know there's a lot of controversy around facial recognition. Um, but, but the key is giving people access. So just to be able to come into the venue and not have to pull out your phone. Maybe that's where we're headed, by the way, that it's facial recognition and not in your phone and everything's recognized and it's already in the system. Who knows? Uh, but it's, we found it to be uh, something that our fans love because they're able to go into our clubs. They have three people with them. Instead of you know, going into your club like, am I on the list? Uh, you're on the list and you just walk right through. So it's amazing technology. It's, we're trying different things every day. It's a brand new company, but it's, it's been awesome to play with. And I, I love to hear you know, what your experience is. Again, this is part of it is the shared learnings that yeah. we're getting from, from everyone. Um, we're, we're testing out biometrics, you know, not necessarily facial recognition, but the, the, end, you know, the end goal that we're trying to, to achieve is trying to remove the friction uh, that it takes to come to an event. Again, you have to put your pants on. Uh, first of all, and uh, you know, get in, in a car or a vehicle or something or walk uh, to get to the ballpark. And so if, any, if at any point in that journey we can remove a barrier, um, and if the barrier is, oh, I have to find my ticket um, by having a face or a hand or, or something, that is a benefit. It, it moves people through the journey much smoother. They can then focus on the experience again, and um, you know, in, in terms of other technology that we're looking at, is um, actually on the sales front. We're looking at AI. Like, how can that help us, um, you know, move the system through so that our salespeople are, are freed up from doing day-to-day -day, um, emails or tasks, and they can actually focus on that human interaction. If we can automate um, some of those other uh, customer service-related emails or sales-related emails, or help them by um, pushing lead scoring, you know, so that the best leads are coming up automatically. They don't have to search through it themselves. That then frees them up to have that human connection and, you know, conversion rate eventually will be higher. So those are all the kinds of friction points that we're looking at trying to smooth out um, for our customers. I'm going to turn now to some audience questions. Um, first one I have up here is, what can college athletics learn from professional sports ticketing strategies? What lessons should they apply? And what lessons should they not apply? They need to do everything. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's no knock on college athletic departments, but at the end of the day, like just core business is people behave exactly in line with their compensation plans. As of right now, there's not like, there's not CROs at colleges that get paid based on renewals or revenue growth, you know? And so I think that like the mindset has to change about being very competitive to win the customer. And we are starting to see that evolution. I mean, we're starting to see the colleges really start elevating it, but um, they, they need to you know, catch up because you know, it's obvious with college football and stuff, we talk about you know, the game day experience being really tough uh, with a lot of these venues still being 70% bleacher seating and people talk about TV, 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 and it's not TV. Sports bars have gotten better and better. Top Golf is a very great experience to watch games. And so I think that it's a function of if that investment doesn't happen, you know, you're, you're going to lose, you know, gaps of, of key customers. Anyone else want to talk about the college pro lessons learned or lessons to be learned aspect of things? 
you know, the, 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 the point about compensation, many of them just can't do it. They can't do it because of, you know, how the compensation systems are set up. I don't know how you'd feel, feel about that with, with uh, you know, being on a university campus and having somebody, like, it, it's, a, it's a controversial thing, but this is, you know, why Legends came up and why Learfield and all these uh, companies, because they do, they, they are able to compensate people. What, I, what I've seen Legends do, and I think is brilliant, that premium customer, uh, they start a new business around the donors. Uh, and they're kind of they're going to reinvent that experience uh, for colleges and universities with with their donors. So basically, what, what they did was the schools didn't have enough staff to call on anyone who didn't have the capacity to donate at least ten thousand dollars. So this is kind of filling that gap. So, really smart, which is brilliant. And because now you're connecting with alumni who kind of felt left out, and that's not just on the. the Ticket sales front. I mean, that's on the, the broad, you know, fundraising. By the way, I think it'd be transformational for women's sports um, at the college university level because if you can get all of those scholarships endowed, uh, we're we're in a different space. Yeah. Mm. Jonathan, this is a question for you. Great. Um, how is the landscape of ticketing affected by players in the NBA going to bigger markets like New York and LA, while teams in smaller markets like OKC and Sacramento have a harder time with that? How does that affect ticketing and strategy? No, that's a very good question. I think, you know, you can look at the NBA and think that there's a large dynamic between big market and small market. Certainly there are nuances and differences versus a team and their pricing power in New York relative to a Sacramento, Oklahoma City, but that doesn't change the fandom of their fan bases across the board. I think when we look at our teams, there's certain expectations that you would expect to see from our larger market teams relative to smaller markets. So in that regard, you know, a job rant in Memphis is a draw. Uh, and you're seeing that team do really well and growing their fan base back from where it was previously the last few years. And certainly they've had a lot of success during the grit and grind area too as well. So at Oklahoma City, you know, certainly in a, in a downturn now and everyone would say that from the organization, but you know, during those previous you know, years there in that city, they've done really, really well from a partnership and ticketing perspective. So uh, in, in that sense, you know, the, the star power certainly plays a role in some of the fan interests in high demand, low demand games, things of that nature. But they all have the levels of opportunity to succeed across the board and driving fans in their market. It's more about, I mean, to, to you know, Patrick's point earlier around just the strategy behind that, how do we think about that balance between capturing as much yield as possible and filling the building and having that right mix across the board throughout the course of a 41 game home season. I think you know, teams have to look at you know, player acquisition as sort of personalizing their needs. You know, Kevin Durant, one of the reasons he went to Golden State was he has a fund that he wants to like be very successful. So he wanted to be around, you know, successful entrepreneurs and you know founders of startups. And so you take a John Morant, like every city has multiple billionaires. And if John Morant's very focused on his business career, then it's up to that owner to say, you gotta meet my friends, right? Maybe you want to invest in this project, you want to invest in this project, really curating that experience. And there's other people who they want to be near their college or where they grew up. So you've got to really cater to the player and kind of you know, make that abundantly clear. I think we also take for granted that you know, Michael Jordan with the Hornets, one thing that he said is he's like, I want to meet the people who buy our suites because they're successful business owners. You know, Michael wants to keep making money and he knows he can make money by networking with the right people. Just infuse that culture into figuring out what the players each want. I was going to say, what, what, we're, I want to get one more audience question, and then we'll kind of head toward the future here in a, a little bit more directly. Um, this is an interesting, perhaps a little bit loaded question, but what do ticketing sales teams waste too much time on? And I'm wondering if either Francis or Kristen might be willing to, to, to take us behind the scenes a little Nothing. bit. Nothing. 
Nothing. Don't waste any time. <laughs> or what would Who you like to do more efficiently? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think those are the things that we've, um, again, looked to AI and technology to help us with because, um, you know, we have, back to the data uh, conversation, we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of single game buyers, but we only have, you know, tens um, of uh, salespeople, and they can't possibly reach out to all of those people um, meaningfully from our organization. So we are trying to put a face to that, you know, and funnel them through. So that that is one area where I felt like we were not very efficient. Um, you know, I, I think just in general, people spend a lot of time Back to the question about your team performance. We can't control team performance. We do not sell team performance. We sell hope and fun and experiences. And um, that is why we spend most of our time on a strategy to fill our ballpark that is team performance proof, if there is such a thing. Um, and really focus on our fans and how can we meet their needs because they're there to see perhaps a ball game they might just be there to see Jonathan. Like, so we're, we're, we're spelling, yeah. <laughs> it, that is a huge draw, by the way. Um, so that, that's where we spend most of our time. So just really trying to make sure that our sales teams aren't, yeah. aren't focused on that. Biggest waste of time is bad leads. Mm, so, yeah. you know, the faster you can get to your best leads, and that's AI, yeah. um, where you're just churning people and, and, and getting people to respond, mm -hmm. the faster you're gonna get to your strength, which is actually getting them in your, in your venue to look at your different neighborhoods uh, to, to choose their neighborhood and choose their seats. Like that's, bad leads is probably the worst. Surprised no one said phone calls. Yeah, good question, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's just our, our traditional way of how we sell tickets, you know, yeah. it's, it's continually evolving and changing and it's, it's, uh, it's an adoption and, and some are slower or faster to that, to that punch, but yeah, no one answers their call for an unknown number and that's certainly the approach of when we probably all sold tickets as a rep, that was our, our go-to, and it's just not the way that- I gotta tell you, I was given a list of, of people to call that hadn't renewed their seats. And the first one that I called, he picked up. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I, could, I literally couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, hi. You weren't prepped. Right. Yeah. So he, he picked, and he, he renewed. I, couldn't, I yeah. literally couldn't believe it that he actually this picked is, up the phone. This, yeah. this goes back to segmentation and personalization. Yeah. Definitely, you have to know, your, you know who, you're, who you're working with. You know. Yeah. Depending on their age, they will pick up. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think this sets us up perfectly for the final question of the panel. I wanted to go around the horn a bit with this. You know, we're going from phone calls to AI, um, and I want to look toward the future. So what do you see as the biggest developments or the biggest challenges um, over the next several years? Where is ticketing um, at the end of this decade and beyond, perhaps? But your, your crystal ball, looking at, peering inside your crystal ball, what do you see? So whoever wants to, well, maybe we'll just go from Patrick on down the road. You know, and so I think about the, the ticket being the fulcrum point to the in-person engagement. And, you know, we think about Major League Baseball and, like, there's this talk about, you know, Mike Trout has 2 million Instagram followers and he's the face of baseball versus these guys in other leagues that have 50 million followers. Well, with baseball, the most popular player is the ballpark, right? You know, and so baseball really learning to lean on that experiential uh, process of going and enjoying just the weather and the atmosphere and, and, and the pace of play, um, but you have to have a ticket to get in. And I think that, you know, we're starting to think about the metaverse and people buying land next to Snoop Dogg's metaverse house and, like, the value of that. And so I think that we're going to have to be open to a dichotomy where you're going to have fans that have, like, 
real-world reward points. And, like, they show up an hour before the game, they get this, they scan their ticket at the seventh inning, they answer a couple trivia questions. So I think there's going to be, like, this in-person gamification that's going to enable fans to have reward points that they can sell on the blockchain or turn in for, you know, perks of value to them. But then we've also got to think about the fan, you know, the Utah Jazz fan in Germany, where if they turn on the TV, they get reward points. And maybe their reward points are for a virtual, you know, Donovan Mitchell jersey in the metaverse that has real value because, you know, I think we take for granted that there's $20 billion of transactions a year of Fortnite skins. So I think that, like, from a ticketing perspective, we really are going to have a virtual ticket, and it's like, you're sort of paying to turn on the game in Germany, but then there's going to be reward set for you. And then the person who matriculates into the game, there's going to be a reward set for you. So I think that that's how we're going to have to start looking at the ticket, that it's really going to be the virtual customer and then the in-person customer. Krista. I agree with Patrick. <laughs> uh, no, he, it, it's really uh, the NFT part of this is going to be really interesting to watch. Um, it's just a matter of like how fast it takes hold. I was asking, I phoned another friend, Matt Wurst, who's in the audience, uh, who started his business mint uh, in this exact area with NFT marketplaces. And when you know, with talking to Matt, it's like the, the possibilities are limitless. And so you don't lo you're no longer going to have to be in the venue to be able to participate. I think that's the big revelation. Um, it's just as a matter of like what that looks like. Yeah, I'm building off of this. This is very similar to what I was thinking about. but. You know, the NBA, 99% of our fans, you know, don't step foot into an NBA venue. So how do we engage those folks? And Patrick mentioned earlier, we have a global audience uh, across the board. Our games are broadcast in 200, 200 countries. Uh, and when you think about it, there's two things that are going to be at play for us. One, it's the idea of how do we engage those fans abroad? And, yeah, I, I do think there's a world where we won't talk about ticketing as just the 18,000 seats in the venue, but it's the massive global following that's engaging with your game uh, on a week-by-week -week basis. And what does that mean? And how do we think about ticketing more broadly because of that? I think the other part of it is the role that ticketing plays to the at-home experience. We've talked a lot about the fans in our venue and the importance to optimize that for their experience as they're there in the stadium, in the ballpark, in the arena. Uh, but we also think about those fans and how they impact the viewing experience as well too, right? You watch an NBA game, a finals game, whatever, that crowd's engagement gets you hyped as you're watching it on TV. Uh, the fact that you hear their crowd noise amplifies that. So in some ways, you know, the, the stage of the arena is a platform for the larger broadcast product that meets and reaches so many other fans across the board. So I think those are two things that we'll see at play that a lot of leagues will start thinking about more broadly and, and how do we continue to optimize that and create that engagement and excitement in a venue, not just for the enjoyment of those fans that are there live, but those folks that are watching uh, globally across the world. I, there's very little to add since this group is uh, amazing. I want to live in your worlds. It, it, the, the interesting thing is how fast it's going to happen. Uh, um, I think, you know, I've been in this industry for a long time and it's been, there's been an evolution for sure, but it's been fairly slow. I just am excited for the roller coaster, you know, the, like we're going down. It's going to be so much fun. Um, all of these uh, technologies are, are providing some of the the ways that we've envisioned what the future could look like, and we it's actually here. It's coming. So very exciting. It's coming, and it's coming quickly. Coming fast. Yes. Well, I want to thank you all to say thank, say thank you to all of the panelists, Francis, Jonathan, Kristen, and Patrick. Thank you to all of you for coming, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you.
This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.